Good morning. Our second reading is from Paul's letter to, Rome, to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 19 through 30. But now the righteousness of God had been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The word of the Lord. Last week, we began a series in the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and we looked at the problem, the problem that humanity has in our sinfulness and as a result of God's justice and wrath. Today, we're looking at the solution, and basically, the goal is this. My hope is to explain the gospel clearly, and if you haven't gotten a sense of this, if you've been with us for weeks or months or years, the gospel is the heart of Christianity. It is the thing. We go back to it again and again. If you're a believer in Christ and have followed him for many years, let this be God speaking to you once again, his reminder, I love you. And if this is new to you, or if you've been in church for much of your life but felt a little bit dry in this whole thing, pray that God would speak to you, that his gospel, his good news would reach your heart this morning. Let me offer a word of prayer. God, speak to us, even as we hear this news that isn't new, but for many of us it is and needs to be heard that way again and again. Amen. We all have a sense of justice. Our sense of justice is very obvious in the way that many uh, books are written and many films are, are, are put together. From a superhero movie where there's a bad guy that we hope in the end gets vanquished, to any crime thriller novel, where in the end you're looking for that resolution, the resolution of the bad guy behind bars, or ended in some way. You see this in a movie like Harrison Ford's The Fugitive, where there's an injustice, the wrong guy has been put in prison, and you're hoping that by the end the right guy gets caught or killed. You see this in A Few Good Men. Many of you remember that famous scene where Tom Cruise finally turns the tables on the colonel. And it's, in the end, the bad guy gets caught, or at least we're supposed to think of him as the bad guy. One of my favorites um, is a children's movie, although you know some of you maybe have never seen it, but it's the Christmas story, the story of the boy who wants the BB gun. He finally loses it one day on the bully, the bully that we're hoping gets justice. And eventually, Ralphie just loses it and starts wailing and punching the bully, Scott Farkas. And it's one of these scenes where all the kids crowd around cheering him on. 
His mom comes and pulls him off the bully, but he doesn't get in trouble because she too knows justice is being served. Scott Farkas had, had bullied every kid in the neighborhood, and her little boy finally was done with it. And as a kid watching that movie, you cheer inside because justice is being served. The bad guy has been caught and punished. If you're not sure if we have a sense of justice inborn in us, just try this trick on, on two or three kids. If you, if you have two or three kids in your family, nephews, neighbors, buy them all ice cream, but buy one of them less ice cream than the others. That clear sense of injustice comes out very vehemently. I see this as well in the way that it, in our culture today, there is a sense, a desire for social justice. I am grateful for people who work in the anti-trafficking movement, whether that's through our laws, through our federal prosecutors, state prosecutors, or those working globally like International Justice Mission whom we support. But when I read some of the stories about trafficking, I cannot imagine working in that field because my sense of justice wells up so strongly that I could not step into that without going full vigilante. When I hear the stories of kids being trafficked, it is more than I can handle. I want justice now and in my way, right? We all have a sense of justice, of what is fair and right and deserving, the way things should or shouldn't be. And I think deep down in, all humanity longs for justice in this world for the wrong things to be righted. It's why some people actually have a hard time believing in God. How could a good God allow these things? It's also why Christians call out with David, where are you? When will you come and bring your justice, O Lord? The problem is, do we really want God's justice? Now we want it for them, we have people in mind when we want God's justice, right? The problem is God's justice is actually just, and therefore it is indiscriminate. And the problem is we're all under it. Our sin, his justice, means we are under his wrath. We saw this last week in chapter one, verse 18, when Paul is revealing the nature of humanity, the wrath of God is being revealed against all people because we suppress the truth about God. We worship and serve other things and God gives us over to the desires of our heart, walking away from him into forsakenness. In chapter three, he sums it up in verses nine through 12 when he says, all of us, Jew or Gentile, are under sin. No one is good, no one seeks God. And he's highlighting the fact that Jews and Gentiles both are under sin. That's basically pagan, secular, immoral people, according to the Jewish world, and religious, moral, good people are under sin. Do not seek God. Do not do good. Paul gets darker before he gets any better. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, By works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. You cannot be good enough to be right with God. And he sums it up more clearly in verse 23, the famous Romans 3.23, when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now the good news in this bad news is that we are all equally fallen short. 
There is not a hierarchy of our goodness or badness. Well, there might be consequentially so in this world, but before God, all of us are equally sinners. But the problem is we don't think about it that way. 19th century Bishop Hanley Mool clarified the way we think and how it's a little bit off. He says, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, God's standard, but so are you. Perhaps in your view, they're at the bottom of a mine, like at the bottom of a pit, and you are on the top of the Alps, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. To describe it another way, let's use the famous bridge illustration. Many of you have seen this. Some of you have used this before. If not, it looks something like this. Our problem is that we are separated from God because of our sin, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, God's wrath being separated from him eternally. That's our problem. And it doesn't matter whether you are Mother Teresa or a murderer, you cannot jump far enough across. You cannot touch the stars. The sum of the problem is all of us are under sin. All of us by nature are apart from God. We face true justice, which is God's holy and righteous judgment on sinful humanity, which is to give us over to our heart's desires, his wrath poured out, which is forsakenness. And ultimately, we cannot save ourselves. So what do we do? It's, of course, the wrong question if you're talking about the gospel. The question is, what did he do? The solution is seen on the other half. God sent his son to die in our place, to experience the death and wrath we deserve. And through him, we are made right. By grace, through faith, we are redeemed. He paves the way. Romans 3.24 gives us the answer. While all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are also justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, we're going to work to clear this one up a little bit. There's a lot of complicated stuff in here. One of the things that's great about Romans is it works for our rational Western mind that likes philosophy played out in postulations and statements. The problem is that it's difficult stuff. What do all these things mean? What is the gospel that's seen here? Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a few minutes this morning to break apart some of these terms and see how they apply to us, and ultimately, what is the solution that God has offered us, and how do we receive and take advantage of that solution? So I wanna look at the three big words in here. I wanna look at propitiation, and justified, and redemption. So first, let's start with propitiation. Each of these terms is a way of talking about salvation using metaphors that were common in that day and age so that people understood them. Propitiation is a religious and sacrificial term. We don't really do sacrifices of animals, but every culture in that day and age sacrificed things in order to appease the gods. 
The Jewish sacrificial system, complete with its temple, was built on propitiation, atoning for sin through the shedding of an animal's blood. You see this in the day of Passover, that famous day when the Lord redeems people from Egypt by they had to take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood on their doorpost, so the wrath of God coming in to bring death on the firstborn sons would not fall on their firstborn sons, but would fall on the lamb instead. God's wrath, God's the, the angel of death is appeased by the blood of the lamb. So propitiation is an atoning sacrifice. When blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins, we deserve death for our sin. A death happens in our place. And ultimately, the hard part about the word propitiation is it actually does mean to appease or satisfy anger and wrath. Another way to look at that is to fulfill justice. There is a judgment and a sentence that is just. We all want just sentences in this world. We want just punishment for crime, for evil. Propitiation is the satisfaction of justice in that sense. But the, the gospel tells us that while we deserve wrath and death, Christ takes our judgment he takes God's wrath for our sin on himself. What that tells us is that God is just because he executes justice, but he is also the justifier of humanity for those who put their faith in Christ. As one commentator said, God is opposed to sin. God loves sinners. He must bring justice so that he is a just God. He brings it on himself because he loves us. The second is redemption. The second term is redemption. Redemption is an economic term. It actually had to do with your debts and enslavement in the ancient agricultural world. So in the ancient world, you didn't have credit cards to put up debt. You actually went into debt and had to indenture yourself to somebody who was more wealthy, who had successful lands or successful businesses. Israel, in its ancient law, had a way of a person being set free after a course of time from their servitude, from their slavery. Their debts could be paid off either by them working for a number of years or by a goel, a kinsman redeemer, somebody in their family who said, I don't want you to be enslaved anymore under that, that curse of debt. I will pay the price to set you free. That's what Paul is saying here. The gospel is the good news that Christ sets us free from the enslaving power of sin and death. Christ paid the, the ransom, the redemption price with his death. We are free from the power of sin and death. Yes, we are still sinners. Yes, we will die physically. But ultimately, they do not rule us anymore. They do not rule us eternally anymore. The problem is even as Christians who believe the gospel is that we struggle doubting our freedom because we struggle with sin or with doubts. We struggle with faith. But the gospel declares we are free. Christ's death on the cross paid for us. We are free and we are his. And our redemption is not based on what we are doing at this given moment. It's based on what he did for us, paying for us. There is no more debt that needs to be paid. 
It's not Christ's death and your goodness that keep you free. It's Christ's death sets you free. You are his. The third term is the one I want to spend a little more time on. It's justification. So justify, justify, justification. There's a whole word group in Greek and in the Hebrew that is essentially the same word, the same terminology, the same root, which is to be just, justified, justice, justification, and righteous, right. Righteous and justice, righteousness and justice are in the same family. It's a legal term. It is a judge's verdict. Your justification is your standing, your status, or the penalties you owe for your standing and status. So, uh, uh, 10 years ago, I was working in Falls Church, and I had many ways to come home from Falls Church, you know, the, the highway, the back roads. Well, this particular day, I was gonna go down Route 7 and get on 66. The road for me to go down Route 7 and get on 66 to come home to Vienna involved going about two miles and 12 to 500 stoplights. And I happened to hit every single stoplight. For some reason, Falls Church doesn't know how to coordinate. I think they maybe changed it, but they, the, the stoplights were not coordinated. I literally hit every single one. So it was 18 miles per hour stop, 18 miles per hour stop. I finally got to the last stoplight right before the high school and you go under the overpass and get on 66 and I was in the front. Nobody in front of me. And I was so frustrated. I was waiting for the light to turn green. I saw the side light turn yellow and then red and as soon as mine hit green, I just gunned it. I was ready to be going fast. Now the problem was um, there's a speed limit and the speed limit continued for another 200 yards before the speed limit changed. My car doesn't go that fast. I got it up to about 45. The problem was it was a 25 mile per hour speed zone. If I had made it another 100 yards, I was in a 35, I would have been fine. Woo! Yes, yes I was, thank you. Here's the ticket. I paid the ticket for speeding, and for about two years, that was on my record. But once the two years was up, because I had paid the ticket and the two years were gone, I owed nothing else. I was justified before the court, before the DMV, before the state. I had paid my penalty in the money that I paid and in the two years of having that on my record. Now it was off my record. Everything was okay. I was right with the state, justified. That's one way of looking at it. Another way is your record, meaning your transcript or resume is a way to look at it. To be justified, your justification is your record of performance that gets you in. Your transcript, your high school transcript, can get you into college. Your resume can get you a job, or at least the job interview. It's what you put forth and say, here's what I have done and why I should be accepted as a candidate. It's why I should have this job, why I should get into this university. Here's my record. Here is my righteousness. Every religion, every worldview, every philosophy has a version of justification. 
some way of getting us in, of being okay, of securing salvation, of assuaging yourself that your life has meaning. In Western religions like Islam, it is obeying the law of God or Allah. In Eastern religions, it's following a certain path and karma, right? Your good or bad will determine what you become in the next life and ultimately whether you are increasing closer and closer to nirvana or further and further away. Your karma, your record, will determine your standing. America, even in its secular state, has a merit and performance-based culture. You are constantly earning your keep. And in some ways that's good, right? Because we say that anyone can become president. Anyone can become the, the corporation leader. Anyone can make it into the NFL. That's not actually true, but we think it. We are a merit and performance-based culture, constantly justifying our existence on the basis of our performance. You will justify your existence on something. Everyone does. It's the question, what makes you right? What gets you in? What makes you okay with God if you believe in God? What gives your life meaning? The gospel says we are made right with God by God. And we are given a righteous standing with God because of God. Christ's death in our place, his perfect life and his atoning death secures for us a right standing with God purely on the basis of his love and mercy for us. Justification is far more than being forgiven. Often we think of salvation as, yes, Christ died to forgive me of my sins. That is true, but it's more than that. To be pardoned is different than justification. To be pardoned is to say, you may go. You don't owe anything else, you may go. I forgive you. But justification, to be justified, is you may come. It's not just God saying, you're free to go. It's God saying, come to my table. You are one of me. Enter anytime you want. It's not just the removal of a bad record, it's the bestowal of a perfect record. When God looks at you and me, he sees Jesus, Christ's righteousness given to us. His perfect record becomes ours. It's not just that my speeding ticket is no longer on my record, it's Christ's perfect driving record becomes mine. The gospel is the opposite and upending of every religion, philosophy, or worldview. In every other way of approaching life, there's a standard that you must live up to. Even if the standard is simply being a decent guy, right? Kind of the average American standard. Is is he a decent guy? The gospel says you cannot live up to God's standard You cannot live up to your culture standard. You can't even live up to your own standards. You can't, but Christ did. 
You're accepted because of Christ's performance, not yours. That is the good news of the gospel. And it's a good news that is received by faith. In Romans 3, 28, Paul says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith is basically this, looking to Jesus and not to my goodness or my performance. As 20th century Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was, is now, or hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. The problem is I find that we are constantly denying the gospel because we take faith and make it a work itself. We think if you've believed in Jesus, right, after a couple of years, you wonder where your, where your energy for Jesus went. I must really believe, and if I don't feel it, if I'm not feeling it right now, I wonder if I actually do believe. As if the fervency of our faith is what justifies us or denies us justification. The problem is we get the swi- we switch out the, the object of faith for the strength of our faith. What matters is the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. A way to understand that is if you take a bunch of kids out to go on a high ropes course for the first time or rock climbing and belaying, you'll have some kids who are very confident. Even if they've never been on one of these ropes courses, they'll just get on and start hopping around on the ropes, even though they're 30, 40, 50 feet up in the air. And you'll have other kids that will never want to climb up that tree. They do not trust the ropes. They do not trust the carabiners. What matters? What matters is not how confident you are on the ropes or how much you doubt the ropes. What matters is the ropes. Either they can hold you or they can't. And they can hold you. They're meant to hold a car. They will hold a 120-pound kid. And whether the kid is shaking in fear or bouncing around like this is the easiest thing in the world, both of them are safe because the ropes are strong. If the object of your faith is Christ, the strength of your faith at this moment is really not that relevant. Ultimately, salvation is a gift, a gift received, because salvation in Christ is by grace. Romans 3.24 puts that in there. We are justified by his grace as a gift. There's nothing you do to deserve it, nothing you can add to it. You don't meet God halfway. It's not God helps those who help themselves. It's not Jesus plus anything else. Church attendance, generosity, being nice to your sister. It's just Jesus. It is by grace. And the good news of the grace of the gospel is that it is incredibly equalizing. In Romans 3, 29 and 30, Paul writes, for we hold that one, sorry, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, 
who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The grace of the gospel is that it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you equally have access to God. And what Paul is getting at there was something that was incredibly radical to the Jewish person who thought they had a unique inroads to God. They were the chosen people who had been given the law. They were the ones who were circumcised, who followed him, who went to the temple. They were closer to God. Surely they get in first, easier, better, on a higher level. But to be saved by grace means any of those other markings, your ethnicity, your race, your nationality, the language you speak, your citizenship, your intelligence, your degrees, your bank account, your family size, the strength or weakness of your marriage, the strength or weakness of you, your goodness or badness. Nothing gets you in or closer. As John Stott put it, at the foot of the cross, we are all on exactly the same level. And that's why in Romans 3, 27, Paul says something that seems kind of strange, but he says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Why is he talking about boasting here? There's no more boasting. It was an honor and shame culture in that day and age, and so to to have honor was to have status and standing in your community, which was reason for boasting. You were a good person a person recognized in the community. To the ancient Jew, their markers of circumcision and ethnicity and clan established them as higher up, closer to God. And on top of that, their faithfulness to works of the law, to sacrifices in the temple, revealed that they were good and in. It was their ethnicity and their observance of the law that were reasons for their boasting. Paul talks about it in Philippians 3, 5 through 6, when he talks about his former reason for boasting. It was his pedigree, his race, his career success, and his religiousness. That was the basis for his boasting. You boast, even though you don't think about it, but it's basically what are you confident about? What does your confidence come from? What do you hope in? Your source of pride is what allows you to measure up to others. We all compare ourselves, and we recognize on some levels, okay, I'm not as athletic as he is, but I've seen more movies than he has. I don't make as much money as she does, but I am way smarter than she is. We all have something that we set ourselves against others in which we put our confidence and hope when we're comparing ourselves or even comparing our own heart. It's what we use to justify ourselves. Tim Keller wrote, what you boast in is what gives you confidence to go out and face the day. It's the thing of which you say, I am somebody because I have that. It's where you draw your identity and self-worth, the object of your faith. So here's my question. Are you a Christian? Not, do you go to church? Do you try to be good? Do you believe in God? To answer the question, are you a Christian, you need to answer this one, in what do you boast? 
What is your confidence actually in? What do you look to to measure up? Your goodness? Your kids' achievements? Your career success? If you look to work, for instance, to justify your existence, then an annual performance review or your quarterly sales quota or whatever it is will be your judgment day. Salvation constantly hanging in the balance. And if you were to lose your job, you might as well be damned to hell. Are you a Christian? Where do you turn to quiet your anxieties and fears? A Christian is someone who boasts only in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Looking to Christ as the source of their confidence, their hope, their justification, and resting fully in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Let's pray. God, our Father, by nature we are apart from you, living our own lives, trying to justify our own existence. Oh, the good news that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, the one who redeemed us to set us free, the one who justifies us, gives us right standing with God and righteousness forever. Thank you that this is a gift received by faith. Give us that faith, Lord, the faith to trust in you, crucified for us. Amen.